Okay, now we're on to chapter six, something very basic, getting food. And these are the topics that we're going to consider. Foraging, sometimes called hunting and gathering, is the oldest method of uh, food extraction that uh, humans have engaged in for about 98% of their history as a species. And it's essentially living off the land and uh, taking uh, plants and animals and as they uh, are encountered. Food production talks about the origins of agriculture. We talk about different, several different kinds of food production systems. And we'll take a look at environmental restraints on food getting. For example, uh, no use growing uh, rice in the desert. I can't sustain it, uh, but it's more complex than that. Uh, the origins of food production. This is interesting because we were hunter-gatherers for a long period of time. Uh, we developed uh, simple agriculture, and one of the curious responses was that uh, the stature of the average human shrank. Uh, it was a really tough time for us. Uh, later we recovered. Then the spread and intensification of uh, food production around the world. And here we essentially see a process where more intensive forms of agricultural, agricultural production have essentially pushed out uh, people who rely on what we call horticulture or pastoralism. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, food production system that we have today, industrial agriculture. So foraging, uh, sometimes called uh, hunting and gathering, is, is a kind of food collecting. It is generally defined as a food getting strategy that obtains wild plants and animal resources through gathering, hunting, scavenging, or fishing. And uh, here are some examples of uh, classic hunter-gatherers. Uh, the top picture of Australian aboriginals. Uh, Australia was a, a continent. Uh, that was completely filled with uh, hunters and gatherers, a very dry uh, climate, uh, not much in the way of agricultural potential. But uh, when Europeans moved in, then agriculture was established there. And uh, unfortunately, it pushed out a lot of the um, native groups there. But you see, um, they have very kind of uh, simple technology. We actually can't see it, but trust me, they do have simple technology. Then if we look at the Inuit uh, or Eskimo, uh, you can see by their dress, uh, much more technologically uh, sophisticated, and clothing is part of technology, so um, be aware of that. Uh, they have a, again, live in a very tough environment, uh, but they have an extremely ingenious uh, form of uh, technology uh, in the way, whether it, it ranges from uh, um, snow houses that uh, protect them from the elements, various kinds of spears, bows and arrows, leisters, harpoons, uh, kayaks, um, which you all know, uh, maybe many of you uh, like kayaks, where they were invented by the uh, uh, the Inuit, and as well as the uh, uh, down parka. That again is an invention of the of the Inuit that we've taken advantage of, and so you can see that uh, technology can vary tremendously depending on the kind of environment that hunter gatherers uh, live in. Um, some general features of, of foragers. Uh, they typically live in small communities. Uh, 25 to 35 uh, uh, people in a group is is about average, about maybe five uh, families or so. Uh, they tend to move around quite a bit. That is, they essentially uh, move to a place, uh, collect the resources. When those resources become scarce, they move to another area uh, where resources are richer, and the process begins again. And they have a division of labor that's essentially based on age and gender. Now that is uh, classically men do nearly all of the hunting. Uh, women do uh, much of the gathering, although men will also uh, gather. 
Uh, they do women do a lot of the food preparation uh, and and other activities. But this is kind of a, you know a classic division of labor. Uh, man the hunter, woman the gatherer uh, is well represented in this uh, kind of food extraction system. Uh, just to give you an idea of um, the kind of ranges they have to um, exploit, uh, here's a group called the, the Natsilic, uh, or I'm going to talk about a group called the Natsilic. They're an Inuit or Eskimo group, and essentially the area that this one group of about maybe uh, um, 60 people uh, exploit is in that red center there in, uh, in, in Nebraska, that red square in Nebraska. And what this means is that you could probably only put about four or five uh, Netsilic groups in the area of Nebraska. Uh, and that just kind of gives you an idea of, you know, living in the Arctic, resources aren't dense. And so what it really puts a premium on is uh, incredible knowledge, geographic knowledge of the environment. And, you know, imagine knowing where all the resources are in such a large uh, area. And that kind of knowledge is really essential to uh, your ability to uh, to survive. So you got to be pretty smart uh, to be a hunter-gatherer in this kind of environment or most other kinds of environments. Uh, complex foragers. Now, sometimes, especially in the northwest coast of, of North America, uh, southern uh, Alaska, Washington, and Oregon, and parts of northern California, that kind of coastal area there, uh, some hunter-gatherers depend heavily on fishing, especially salmon runs that go up the, uh, the rivers, such as the uh, uh, Klamath and, and other uh, rivers uh, in the area. And they're able to have really large communities, and they're pretty much semi-permanent. They had a great deal of social inequality. That is, there were chiefs and commoners, uh, typically among hunter-gatherers, such as the uh, Inuit um, you saw earlier or the Australian Aborigines. Uh, that we have kind of equality or an egalitarian kind of society. Here we had a tremendous amount of social uh, ranking and uh, inequality. And so some hunter-gatherer societies could become uh, quite complex. And here's just kind of an example of some of their artistic uh, traditions. Uh, the mass there that they're uh, famous for in this really kind of interesting what we call split representation. Uh, and uh, also if you take a look at a, a plank house uh, we have here, uh, a shot taken in 1899 and when these houses were still um, present and with the iconic totem poles. Uh, again, uh, it derives from uh, this kind of society. You can see that uh, it, was, it was a very kind of technologically sophisticated, uh, artistically um, uh, a complex form of, uh, of society. Uh, so some hunter-gatherers uh, can be very complex, but typically they're not. Uh, if we were to kind of look at, we're going to look at foragers and horticulturalists and pastoralists and intensive agriculturalists a little bit later, but uh, we're moving essentially from, uh, we, as we move from foragers to pastoralists to intensive agriculturalists, what we're talking about is that people are, are extracting more and more food energy uh, out of the land. As a consequence, their populations are larger. As we move from foraging, to intensive agriculture, then mobility decreases. People begin to live in permanent uh, houses. Um, what's really interesting about uh, hunter-gatherers is that uh, food shortages are very infrequent, but as we move to pastoralists and intensive agriculturalists, uh, the possibility of um, some kind of famine uh, increases, and that's because people are living on the edge. 
They're, they're, they're squeezing every last uh, calorie they can out of the environment. And as a consequence, any kind of climatic changes can cause uh, problems. And so that's kind of an interesting um, uh, difference uh, in, 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 in food security that we have. And so, you know, take a look at this chart. It kind of gives you some good general trends uh, as we move from uh, very low levels of extract extraction foragers to the highest levels of extraction intensive uh, agriculturalists. Uh, food production began about 10,000 years ago uh, and um, although it was most early or it was found earliest in uh, the Middle East, an area we call the Fertile Crescent uh, in, in Iraq and, and in parts of, uh, of Turkey, uh, it was independently invented as the um, text shows in uh, North America, South America, uh, India, uh, Asia, especially China, and Southeast uh, Asia. And so, um, but pretty much as the world began to fill up with hunter-gatherers and uh, they could no longer successfully live by just living off the land, they had to invent something they called uh, food production uh, or general agriculture to essentially support uh, increasingly dense populations. And so um, we're going to go through a couple of different kinds of um, uh, post-hunting and gathering or foraging systems, horticulture, intensive agriculture, and pastoralism. And uh, horticulture is the simplest form of um, agriculture. Uh, it's uh, relatively simple. Uh, sometimes it's called slash and burn agriculture. Uh, that is, people will clear areas of forest. Uh, they burn uh, the, the debris. And that provides a little bit of fertilization. They plant. Uh, they're able to cultivate the area of land for a couple of years, uh, after which either soil nutrients begin to get deplenished or uh, weeds become uh, more and more uh, tough to eradicate until at such time it's better to start all over again in a new uh, area of land. That's sometimes been called, it's called shifting agriculture in that it moves from place to place to place uh, through time as people give up on land, clear new areas of land. The land that they've left begins to regenerate again, and so it's a kind of a stable system. And there are two horticultural societies described, the Anamamo and the Samoans. And by the way, I've done a lot of work on the Anamamo, and some of my work is cited there uh, in terms of how their uh, horticultural system works and uh, some time allocation studies in terms of how much time they spent hunting uh, gathering, fishing, uh, and, and cultivating. And for a lot of these groups, uh, in simple horticultural groups, although they do plant, they do depend also a lot on hunting, gathering, and fishing to supplement their diet, mainly by getting high-quality protein into the diet. Intensive agriculture, uh, here we have a change uh, that uh, we have permanent uh, field cultivation. Uh, the soil is turned over uh, with plows. Uh, or uh, extensive hoeing, uh, sometimes irrigation, sometimes drainage is part of the system. For example, in, in New Guinea where you get a lot of rain, what you have to do is have raised beds. And so again, uh, the fields tend to be uh, permanent uh, or they're uh, rotated uh, with different crops or let to uh, lay fallow for a couple of years. Uh, but this is intensive agriculture and it su supports a um, higher population density. and. Uh, two groups are, are, are um, illustrated in the text in rural Greece and then in rural uh, Vietnam along the Mekong Delta, the rice cultivation. Uh, and so take a look at those kinds of systems. They're very um, uh, 
um, similar, uh, even though they grow different crops, uh, but in terms of how they do their cultivation and they rest land and they irrigate and they fertilize and things of that nature. Uh, in fact, you know, irrigation and fertilization are absent typically in horticultural groups, but they're present in agricultural uh, groups. And also what we have too in both these groups is the use of domesticated animals uh, as tractors, uh, that is traction animals, that is they're needed to help um, turn over the, the ground to kind of uh, mix nutrients and, and uh, enhance the quality of soil to allow roots to penetrate more easily and, uh, and more deeply into the soil. So again, putting more labor into a constant area of land is a hallmark of uh, what, what goes on as we move from uh, these different uh, forms of um, uh, food getting. And then pastoralism is a subsistence technology involving primarily the raising of large herd animals. Typically, in pastoralism, agriculture is possible to some extent, but it's not very reliable. As a consequence, they rely on animals who are well adapted to the local environment. And the kind of food products they um, get from these animals is not really the meat. Uh, they typically uh, uh, slaughter old animals, uh, uh, and, and they may use that um, uh, for meat, and sometimes occasionally uh, younger animals. But it's mainly the dairy products or blood products that are used uh, because, you know, uh, if you kill a cow, uh, then you can't milk it anymore. And so what they use these animals for is, you know, what they produce in the way of, of, um, of, of milk and, uh, and blood. And there are two examples given. Uh, one of the Laps who, who live in, um, they're sometimes called the Sami, S-A-M-I, who live in Finland. And um, they uh, rely on, on reindeer, uh, milk, and then the Baseri. Uh, who are, you know, a um, Middle Eastern uh, a group um, and who raise a variety of different uh, animals. Again, um, except for the laps, they're an exception. Uh, they don't do any cultivation at all because they can't, given the kind of environment they, they live in. Uh, most of these groups do some agricultural, um, but, it, but it's not very reliable. And so typical uh, with these uh, pastoral societies is that they uh, rely on trading relationships with uh, settled um, uh, agricultural groups where they exchange meat and dairy products for uh, grains that the um, um, uh, agriculturalists um, uh, cultivate and produce. Um, environmental restraints on food getting, uh, you know, how much does the physical environment affect food getting? Uh, the physical environment normally exercises a restraining rather than a determining influence on how people in an area get their food. For example, uh, if you're an Inuit and you live in the Arctic, well, agriculture uh, is, is out. But in some areas of the Arctic, uh, for example, the, the laps, they're able to uh, uh, herd uh, reindeer. And so the environment, you know, uh, kind of, you know, kind of blocks off the certain kinds of strategies that you can pursue. Uh, enforcing uh, or allowing others uh, to be um, uh, utilized to uh, to get food, and uh, you know we see um, back to pastoralism now, uh, steppes, prairies, and savannas. You know these dry areas that are rich in grasses. Uh, they're unforested, or if they're forested, they have what we call parkland forest, kind of outcrops of trees here and there, like you might see in a uh, in, in a park. And, and again. Uh, the reliance is on animals that are well adapted to these kind of low uh, rainfall uh, kinds of environments.
Um, the origins of food production, again, uh, population growth, uh, and um, that's essentially the, the motor that um, allows or, or forces agriculture to be uh, developed. And again, one of the really interesting phenomena that we found where agriculture was invented soon after it was invented, and it turns out that uh, stature reduced by four or five inches for men and women, lots of evidence of malnutrition, uh, but once it gets going, uh, they get a better balanced diet, uh, more reliable food production, then these sorts of problems uh, disappear and the growth um, uh, uh, patterns, uh, you know, begin to uh, increase as they were among hunter-gatherers. Uh, pop, you know, global population growth uh, is a, um, you know, a kind of main factor. Uh, all the world essentially is being filled up with um, people who, who cultivate and they've displaced uh, hunter-gatherers through time. Uh, and um, part of the factors that may have, have um, um, uh, led to uh, food production was the emergence of hotter, drier summers and colder winters about 10,000 years ago. So there may have been a kind of uh, climatic push that led people to um, engage in agriculture. Um, and again, as I mentioned, um, in competition for land between food producers and food collectors, food producers may have had a significant advantage. I'd say they absolutely had an advantage in most places uh, because essentially uh, if you have technological parity and warfare is going on, then the group that can put the most warriors into the field is going to uh, win, the, uh, win the battle if they're all using the same weapons. And in this case, um, uh, agriculturalists were able to, um, uh, to do so. A good example that many of you are probably aware of, uh, where there's not technological parity, for example, uh, Genghis Khan and, and other nomadic people, uh, given their uh, use of bow and arrow, uh, from uh, from hor and, and horses were able to defeat a lot of settled groups, uh, even though they didn't have a numerical uh, advantage. But the speed, the maneuverability of uh, of cavalry allowed them to essentially overcome for a time a number of uh, more complexly organized agricultural groups. Uh, here are you know this is you know essentially from me adding. Um, uh, stuff uh, into the textbook. Here are some of the general trends in the uh, food extraction system. So we move from hunters and gatherers to intensive agriculture. We're talking about extracting food energy from the environment. So what you get through time as you move from hunter-gatherers to intensive agriculture to indeed petrochemically dependent agriculture, increased uh, landscape modification. Uh, that is the land is converted from a wildscape to a uh, an agricultural landscape, lowered biodiversity, lack of conservation, that is um, uh, you simplify the environment by uh, planting uh, acres and acres of pure strands of rice or wheat or whatever crop you happen to be growing, uh, increased energy output per unit area, you're pulling more energy uh, out of uh, a hectare or acre of land, uh, that's what allows you to produce uh, or support a greater population. Uh, increased energy input uh, per unit area, putting more energy in uh, every you know square uh, meter or hectare or, or acre of land as you you know kind of uh, manipulate it to the maximum by 
bringing water to it, adding fertilizer to it, uh, turning the soil over with traction animals. You get a specialization in monocropping that is, again, uh, instead of hunter-gatherers rely on, you know, maybe a couple dozen food resources, but intensive agriculturalists only rely on a couple kinds of resources. So you get this kind of monocropping that goes on. Uh, decreased use of wild resources. This is fairly obvious that you convert most of the landscape to agricultural lands. Well, there's not much in the way of wild resources to uh, depend on to uh, make the diet more uh, varied uh, and to you know fill in all your um, nutritional needs. And then greater uh, energy input per unit output uh, actually with uh, petrochemical um, uh, resources for every uh, one calorie of um, food energy we uh, we create through cultivation we have to expend eight calories of, uh, of energy and most of this is uh, uh, petrochemical energies and clearly uh, it's an unsustainable system because it depends on resource um, oil largely uh, that uh, declines through time so uh, these are the main trends that have happened uh, as we move from hunting and gathering to intensive agriculture which is the heart of uh, what is in chapter 6.